I'm happy to be here talking about men. And in fact, uh, I titled my message tonight, Man Up. You wouldn't see that because I wouldn't publish it anywhere, but it's in my notes, Man Up. And then after I saw the way John Street is dressed, I scratched that out and put Cowboy Up. <laughs> so and tonight I want to look at, and we'll get there eventually. I'm not going not gonna to get there quickly, but you can turn there if you have your Bibles We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Our theme this week is leadership, and along with that, since this is a men's conference, I want to talk about masculinity, because those two things, leadership and masculinity, go together. In fact, I have a book by a British author named David Pawson titled Leadership is Male. That's the title of his book. He's defending the doctrine that men are to be the leaders in the home and in the in the family and at church. And uh, it's a book that was first published in 1988, more than 30 years ago. And sadly, I don't know of a major Christian publisher today who would publish that book, a book by that title anyway, because it's not politically correct to say that men rather than women are supposed to lead both the church and the home. But Scripture teaches that God designed men for leadership in the same sense that he designed women for nurturing and helping. And Scripture expressly treats qualities like leadership and fortitude and strength as masculine characteristics. Uh, Gentleness and tender care are identified as feminine qualities, To be clear, these are all virtues. They're all expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. And the truth is both genders should develop a measure of every kind of virtue. So when we say strength, for example, is a masculine quality, we're not saying it pertains exclusively to men. But in general, what we're saying is that masculine virtues are generally weighted towards strength and courage, and feminine virtues are supposed to be more soft and graceful, and the normal order of creation is for men to be leaders and providers and protectors, specifically in order to give women the freedom to do what only they can do, and that is to bear and nurture children. That's not a popular view these days, and some of you may even cringe to hear me say it. And also, let me qualify by saying this, any man who lords it over his wife is abusing the principle of leadership. As men, we need to recognize feminine virtues are true virtues, and we need to honor them. And get this, we also need to cultivate in ourselves those meek and gentle virtues in an appropriate fashion. And you see this, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle Paul reminds the whole church, the Thessalonian church, that his demeanor toward them had been gentle, he says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And he says, we were affectionately desirous of you because you'd become very dear to us. He's describing his ministry to them in deliberately feminine terms because those are all distinctively maternal qualities, and he specifically identifies them as the distinctives of a nursing mother. But then in the very next verse, he starts talking about he was also like a 
hardworking, strong, bold father to them as well. He goes on to say, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, verse 11, like a father with his children. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And he's saying those are masculine traits, hard work, courage, strength, and above all, leadership. Now, Scripture never sets the masculine qualities against the feminine ones or vice versa, as if one were superior to the other. That's not the idea, but that both are good and necessary in their place. After all, Eve was specifically created, in the words of Genesis 2.18, to be a helper fit for Adam, suitable for him, one who balances him is the idea. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation says, she is made to be a helper as his complement, and I like that. In other words, she, she completed him, she balanced him, she was made to work alongside him, not as his scullery maid, but as his fellow worker and his boon companion, his partner. As Matthew Henry famously said, and you'll hear this line quoted at weddings sometimes, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And that is the idea. So starting with Genesis and the creation account, Scripture consistently makes it clear that the man was designed to be a provider and a protector, and the woman was designed to be his ally and his intimate companion. There is a sense in which they are equals, but there is also a sense in which he is the head and she's to be submissive to him. They encourage one another. They support one another. And my point is this. The man's role as a leader is not about dominion and superiority, and the woman's role as helper is not about subjugation and servitude. It's not a competition. It's a partnership. In other words, the genders were specifically designed to facilitate marriage. They're designed for different roles, and the idea is to make them suitable for marriage. And marriage is specifically designed to facilitate procreation. And the consequence of all of that is a family. And the ideal family establishes both male and female influences as examples for the children. So you have a masculine leader, that's the father, and you have a feminine nurturer and caregiver, that's the mother. And there are, of course, exceptions to that. There are single people, there are people who legitimately stay single all their lives. The Apostle Paul himself was single, and he expressly says that there is a very vital role of service and work for people who do not marry, people who remain single for life. And 1 Corinthians 7 is full of instructions for singles and people who've been widowed. But the biblical norm, the norm for humanity, is the nuclear family. That's the basic building block of all society. The nuclear family, meaning with a wife and a husband, covenanted to one another for life. Jesus himself said this when he quoted from Genesis 2.24, specifically in order to teach this principle. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
I love that statement because it, it stresses how they are partners and, and companions, not competitors. It's not lording it over the wife, but they are, the two are no longer two but one flesh, Jesus says. Wherefore, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. And that is the ideal. That's the norm. Permanent marriage. And Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. So it is expressly a role of leadership and responsibility. And here's the scary part. When male leadership declines, when a society decides that masculinity is toxic and men shouldn't be the leaders, when the two-parent family ceases to be the cultural norm, culture itself is doomed. And when strong fathers become the rare exception rather than the rule, crime proliferates, moral values deteriorate, the whole fabric of the community breaks down. You can see it happening all around us. When efforts are made to obliterate the differences between men and women, society is doomed. But that is precisely what's happening all around us. You mentioned the words masculinity, or leadership, or even use gender-specific pronouns these days, and the typical postmodern person's hackles are immediately raised. We've been told relentlessly that masculinity is inherently toxic, that the integrity and the credibility of people in leadership is automatically to be suspect, and that gender differences don't really exist. That's just socially constructed illusion. And let's face it. Lots of churches and lots of popular evangelical leaders have deliberately marginalized manhood and belittled masculine qualities and favored womanly, soft, delicate mushiness, even from our preachers. And I don't know about you, but I hate that, and I think a lot of men naturally hate it, uh, that modern evangelicals just seem to love speakers who can tiptoe around the tough issues without ever upsetting anyone or ever really addressing anything with clarity and force. The church itself has become a place where the atmosphere, frankly, isn't well-suited to strong, rugged, virile manhood, and we need to get that back. Now, let me be clear. When I say, let me turn my dinger off because somebody's texting me. Is that one of my grandsons? Where was I? Now, I want to be clear. When we say that we need to cultivate true biblical masculinity, I'm not denigrating feminine virtues, qualities like tenderheartedness and empathy and kindness. Those are real virtues. And I, of all people, would not for a moment want to downplay the beauty of humanity's feminine half. According to Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is characterized chiefly by graceful traits like meekness and long-suffering and other sympathetic virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And far from being exclusively feminine traits, those are virtues that we're all supposed to cultivate, and especially leaders in the church. And by the way, pugnaciousness is a disqualifying character flaw. So even as men, we have to take that aggressive uh, sort of defensive 
natural tendency that we all have and make sure it doesn't get out of control because pugnaciousness, pugnaciousness that, that eagerness to fight is not a manly virtue. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So there's a balance even in that. He's got to be a strong teacher committed to the truth and able to correct error. Those things are important, but he has to do it with a, a modicum of gentleness as well. So I am not suggesting that qualities such as gentleness and kindness are somehow sinfully or shamefully effeminate, or that loutish behavior is a good thing. Far from it. But Scripture does celebrate the, the differences between men and women, and as men, we need to be manly in the sense that Scripture celebrates those distinctively masculine virtues like strength and courage and steadfastness and conviction and a, a host of similar virtues that are historically associated with leadership and masculinity. And Jesus is the quintessential example of that. He is the perfect man. He is the epitome of true manhood. And this is literally the same point the Apostle Paul makes when he raises this issue of manhood and masculinity. And so I want to show you that. You should have turned already to Ephesians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. And before we get into it, let me say this biblically. When we talk about manliness, we're talking about authentic character. It's not about bravado. It's not about boyishness. I already said it's not about pugnaciousness or anything like that. But real masculinity, real manliness is defined by Scripture as Christ-like character. And we're not talking just about the gentle Jesus, meek and mild style character, but the full-orbed fruit of the Spirit rounded out with strength and courage and conviction and a, a stout-hearted willingness to oppose error and fight for the truth, even to the point of laying down your life for the truth if that's necessary. And it often is. And that is what Scripture portrays as authentic manliness. And it's the duty of every man in the church to be a model of that kind of manhood and to cultivate that kind of courage and conviction and commitment to Christ and the gospel. And, and can I prove that from Scripture? Absolutely. Hopefully you're looking at Ephesians 4 by now. And that's where I want to flesh this idea out. Ephesians 4 this is a familiar text to, I think, most of you. Paul is describing here how Christ has equipped the church and gifted the church so that when he ascended to heaven, the church was not left destitute of leadership and manly examples of Christ-likeness. So look at verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, what kind of gifts did he get? People all, always mess this passage up because they think, well, this is about spiritual gifts. This is about my abilities or my, my whatever I'm good at. And, and that's not it. Paul is not saying he's, he, this is not the spiritual gifts that are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12. This is, these are different gifts. Verse 11, these gifts are men. Verse 11, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, 
follow this carefully. Paul is not saying here that Christ gave offices to the church. He's, he's not saying that certain men are gifted to be pastors and, and teachers. That, that's true, but that's not what he's saying here. John MacArthur is the pastor teacher of Grace Community Church. Paul is not saying here that Christ gifted John MacArthur by calling him to be a pastor teacher. He's saying Christ gifted the church by giving us our pastor teacher, John MacArthur. He is a gift from Christ to the church. That's true of every legitimate pastor and church leader and evangelist and uh, all the officers that he names here. Now, I want to be careful with that because I'm kind of a lay pastor myself, and someone's going to say, oh, that's Phil Johnson's problem. He thinks he's God's gift to the church. <laughs> well, yeah. But I don't mean it the way that cliche makes it sound. It doesn't mean that there's something special about me that I can wield as a weapon to browbeat people into submission. In fact, it's practically the opposite. It means that the pastor himself is a token of God's grace to the church, and therefore the pastor has a duty to be a model of grace and Christ-likeness to the church. He, he has a greater duty. And Scripture says he faces a more severe judgment, James 3.1, so that when I acknowledge that, according to this text, I am a gift from Christ to the church, I'm not claiming a position of privilege. I'm recognizing my higher duty to be a model of the kind of manliness that we're here to talk about. But it's clear from this text, isn't it, that Christ gave these men to the church. That's Paul's point. So look at the passage starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, notice this, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So Christ is the model. He is the example. He is the quintessential figure of true manliness. And that's what we are called to grow up into. The passage couldn't be any more clear. Now, I'm going to pay the most attention tonight to verses 13 through 15, but I don't want you to miss what verse 12 is saying, that Christ gave these gifts to the church, the, the apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers, for what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That is not three separate ideas. That's the way it's sort of punctuated in the Old King James Version, set off by commas like this. One, for the perfecting of the saints. Two, for the work of the ministry. And three, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's not three different things, though. It's actually a progression, the long progression of a single idea that Christ gave these men to the church to equip the saints so that the saints could do the work of the ministry, and that in turn results in the building up of the church. We've seen that over the years at Grace Community Church, and we're privileged to be part of that. But notice, it's the saints and not the clergy, 
not the clergy only anyway, who are tasked with doing the work of the ministry. We all share in that. And that's why I, I want to stress that the, the problem we are facing in the church with the loss of you know, real examples of masculinity, this calls for a grassroots solution. It's a problem for all of us, not just the, the men who are leaders in the church, but all of us who are called to be leaders. Not necessarily office holders in the church, but leaders, leaders in our own family, leaders to our own children, leaders to those around us. That is the job of masculinity. And the handful of men in, currently in leadership in the church are not going to be able to turn it around. It's not their job. Their job is to equip you and me so we do the work of the ministry. Okay, now notice the rest of the passage I just read is all about perfect manliness. That's the theme here. And that's what I want you to focus on carefully. Perfect manliness, verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. And Paul uses the word there, aner, in the Greek, which means man. And it's not just a general word for person. It's a masculine expression. And in fact, you won't find the word at all in the NIV, of course, because that translation is basically some Christian publisher's attempt to emasculate the terminology of Scripture. But here Paul is, is specifically using the word for manhood. And in fact, it's a word that is often translated husband. It is the main Greek word that is used to designate men in contrast with women. He's talking about manhood here, and in this instance perfect manhood. And he defines the idea in verse 13. He describes it in verse 14. And he diagrams it for us a little bit in verse 15. And so if you want an outline for this, here it is. He's talking about perfect manliness. And in verse 13, he tells us what it is. In verse 14, he tells us what it does. And in verse 15, he tells us how it works. So that's it. Three points about perfect manliness, what it is, what it does, and how it works. You can get those down on your note sheet, and I'll go over them, and we'll look at them in order. First, perfect manliness, what it is. And this is not hard to see. What is perfect manliness? If you embodied it in a living form, what would it look like? That's as easy as asking, who's the perfect man? It's Christ. And notice how Paul equates the perfection of manhood with the person of Christ. Three phrases, all parallel, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, my work is usually editing text. I'm a grammarian, and in grammar, when you follow a noun phrase with a synonymous noun that's set off by commas, that's called an appositive. This won't be on the exam, but you need to learn a little grammar here. It's an appositive, which means that the phrases are syntactically and definitionally parallel. They're exact synonyms, and they are purposely set next to one another in order to stress that fact. And this text is like a double appositive, three phrases that all say exactly the same thing in quick succession. So coming to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God is the very same thing as reaching the state of becoming a perfect man. 
And that is exactly the same thing as measuring up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's saying the same thing just three times in a row. Or in very simple terms, he's saying Christ himself is the incarnation of perfect manhood and masculinity. And we as men need to be conformed to his likeness. That's the definition of sanctification, isn't it? You could say, I didn't put this in my notes, but you could say that sanctification, the process of sanctification, is simply the perfection of our masculinity, making us more like that perfect man, Christ. Now, this requires some unpacking, and frankly, it would take a lot of unpacking, and we could spend hours, maybe even weeks, talking about the features of Christ's masculinity. What is, what is it that makes him the perfect man? But obviously, we don't have time to do that. So I'm just going to remind you that the frequent caricature that we often see of Jesus as a mild-mannered, soft-spoken, effeminate, long-haired, doughy-eyed, girly man that is not an accurate portrayal of the Son of Man as we meet him in the four Gospels. Think of this. He grew up in a working man's home, probably learning carpentry as a trade from the time he was you know, five years old or so. So his hands would be calloused from his childhood. He was at home with career fishermen. That's who he chose to be his disciples. And uh, not just the career fisherman, but a former tax collector who was kind of a hoodlum and a former zealot who was kind of a political terrorist, and other people from society's underbelly. That's, that's who he chose to be his closest followers. These were the kind of men he hung out with. He doesn't show any evidence ever of refined tastes or an appreciation for high culture. He was not a soft and cushy person. I don't think he was the kind of guy who would sit around drinking tea with his pinky finger out, you know. But look at how he appears in the Gospels. When he speaks to crowds, every time he is deliberately provocative, stressing those very truths that they probably didn't very much like, rather than pampering them with smooth words, which he never did. He's always blunt and confrontive, especially when he speaks to those who oppose him. He's very, very bold. He, he tackles lies and insincerity head on and without any velvet gloves. And it's not that he's naturally harsh. He's not. When he speaks to repentant sinners, he's always tender and forgiving. But when he speaks to presumptuous sinners willful sinners or hypocritical sinners, he does become a kind of living illustration of what Hebrews 10.31 means when it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He was always authoritative and clear and powerful, and he never backed down when somebody challenged him with a lie or a false doctrine. He would go right after him. Remember that twice... Once at the start of his ministry and once near the end of it, he cleansed the temple by making a whip and chasing out the bad guys. He bookended his whole earthly ministry with that. He turned over tables, he freaked people out, and he he showed a particularly strong and manly kind of anger, righteous indignation. My point is that no one who ever knew Jesus would have confused him with a wimp. 
And I don't think they would have drawn pictures of him like we usually see, that sort of girly man look. Now again, that is not to suggest that he was some kind of ruffian. He was not only manly, he was also gentlemanly. He was full of grace and truth, always in perfect harmony and in perfect balance. Listen to what Spurgeon said about Jesus' manliness. Spurgeon said, His meekness was balanced by his courage and by the boldness with which he denounced hypocrisy. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you fools and blind, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Those aren't soft words. In fact, uh, Spurgeon says it like this. Those are not the words of the milksop some authors represent Christ to have been. He is a man, a thorough man throughout, a godlike man, gentle as a woman, but yet stern as a warrior in the midst of the day of battle. And Spurgeon says, the character is balanced, as much of one virtue as of another. As in deity, every attribute is full-orbed. Justice never eclipses mercy, nor mercy justice, nor justice faithfulness, so that in the character of Christ you have all the excellent things, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are of good report. You have them all, Spurgeon says, but not one of them casts a shadow on another. They all shine and all with undimmed splendor. It's a good way of looking at it. Everything that is excellent you see characterized in Christ, including perfect manliness. That's what men in the church, and I'm talking about every individual man in the church and all of us collectively, that's what we're supposed to be pursuing till we all come unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So here's a second point, verse 14. Let's look at perfect manliness, what it does. And notice that Paul sort of homes in on one characteristic of manliness that he sees as the mark of true maturity. You want to be a a man as opposed to a little boy? Grow up in your grasp of the truth. Get a grip on sound doctrine and quit being influenced by every new trend and every undulating breeze that blows across the evangelical landscape. Stop following the fads. Quit chasing those. Get anchored in the truth, verse 14, I'll read it from the King James Version, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So I think it's intriguing that that is the one mark of true manhood that he singles out, steadfast convictions, specifically an unshakable commitment to the truth of Scripture, sound doctrine, spiritual wisdom, personal holiness, and a love of righteousness. All of that is encompassed in this. That's the the backbone of true masculinity, and that is what makes a man fit to lead. Men, you need to be certain of what you believe, and you need to understand it, And you need to be able to defend it against everything, ranging from the changing winds of whatever happens to be in style at the moment, all the way to human trickery and cunning craftiness, the cunning craftiness of Satan himself. 
This is what I think Paul has in mind here. Because the enemy will offer all kinds of counterfeit doctrines that look good and sound okay, false doctrines where the error is so carefully nuanced that it's hard to put your finger on what's wrong with it. He'll tempt you to set aside what is precise and and carefully defined in place of, you know, dumbed-down doctrinal formulas that usually don't sound all that dangerous. And you need to be able to make wise and careful evaluations of those things so that you can stand firm for the truth and help fend off the lies and be a true man in the sense that counts the most. Every other expression of perfect manliness is actually rooted in and grows from your grasp of the truth. Because if you don't have a good grasp of the truth, none of the other fruits of the Spirit are are going to be able to grow to fruition. Incidentally, have you ever noticed how many of the New Testament metaphors for the Christian life involve manly figures? According to Ephesians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 and several other passages, we as Christians are supposed to be warriors. I spoke on this at Shepherd's Conference once and said, warriors, not figure skaters, right? Warriors, it's a deliberate imagery. 1 Corinthians 9 likens the Christian life to being an athlete who trains hard. 2 Timothy 2 repeats Both of those metaphors, the warrior and the athlete, and it adds the image of a farmer. So soldiers, athletes, farmers, those are all manly images, and especially in the culture of biblical times when there were no female athletes. Now get this. All of those images picture the defense of the truth and the ministry of the gospel. The defense of the truth and the ministry of the gospel. So you see... The real man's work is ministry. That's true man's work. I mean, it's great to to do stuff that requires effort, you know, splitting logs and all those things. That's manly too. But the heart of, of a real man's work is to defend the truth and proclaim the gospel because that taxes every classic manly virtue, strength, courage, boldness, determination, perseverance, and all those other qualities that have to do with manliness. You cannot minister the gospel well without those qualities. And done right, it is hard work, but it brings eternal rewards. And if that doesn't appeal to your sense of manliness, Paul says you need to grow up. He said that. I didn't. But he's right. And if you want a taste of what real manhood feels like in its most pure and undiluted distillation, do some gospel ministry in a hostile environment. Stand up for the truth in some venue where it is under attack. Get a solid, manly grasp on the Bible and stand up and teach its hard truths in a way that helps make the truth clear to people who are struggling to get it. There aren't voices like that very very much in the world today. Or contend earnestly for the faith when some nice-sounding heretic wants you to sit down and have a friendly dialogue about it. That's not always the right approach. Be the kind of man Paul describes here, someone who is steadfast and sure, with a solid grasp of things that 
frankly, these days, it's not very popular to hang on to. Stand against popular opinion when you know you should, and do it every time the opportunity arises. And do it with Christ-like grace and authentic charity. More on that in a moment. But notice, the real gauge of a perfect man, as Paul describes it here in Ephesians 4, is that he is firm and steadfast in the truth, which means he is disciplined, he's knowledgeable, he's anchored, he understands the truth well, and he's devoted to it. He has his senses trained for discernment. And by the way, that doesn't happen to lazy people. You have to be diligent to get to that point. Read Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14 for the classic uh, prescription on how to move out of adolescence and into that kind of mature manliness. And in fact, hold on to this thought because we're going to come back to it tomorrow in our next session. I'm going to look at a psalm that describes biblical manliness. But for now, here's a third and final perspective on perfect manliness. Ephesians 4 Verse 15, take a look at perfect manliness, how it works, how it works. And notice here that there's a balance. Because if you think that I'm telling you the way to prove that you're a man is to go out and pick fights with other people over points of doctrine, hang on, that's not the point. Listen to how this kind of manliness must always work. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love so that you may grow up in all things to him who is the head, Christ. Now, here are a couple of things to notice about this. First, you'll find this stress on love throughout the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, Paul's main message to Timothy is precisely what we're talking about. He tells him to be manly, be courageous. Chapter 2, verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in fact, if you read through Paul's epistles to Timothy, it's full of exhortations to him to not be afraid, to to basically man up. Timothy apparently had a a natural proclivity toward being too timid. No wonder, he was raised by his mother and his grandmother, Paul says. So he maybe lacked that male influence until Paul came into his life and discipled him, and Paul keeps telling him, don't be so timid. He exhorts him to show courage, to be strong. Don't let people despise your youth. And in fact, remember, 2 Timothy 2 is where Paul uses that triple imagery of a soldier and an athlete and a farmer all in very quick succession. And so this is his message to Timothy. Be a man. But, he says, Don't go picking fights unnecessarily as if to prove what kind of a man you are. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 22. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So he says, fight the truth, wage war against the lies, pull as many people as possible from the snare of the devil, but, Paul says, do it as much as possible with gentleness and humility and love. Always 
speak the truth in love. To be able to do that, he says, control your tongue and, and don't lash out with human anger. That's the very pinnacle of, uh, of perfect manliness, to be able to control that. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God, James 1.20. But having said all of that, before we close, let me be sure to stress that what I'm trying to say is this is balanced both ways. It's not one-sided in either direction. Notice in Ephesians 4.15 that the words in love only modify the actual imperative that this verse is written to give. The heart of the commandment is to speak the truth. People today fit, forget that. They leave it out purposely, I think. If you stifle the truth for the sake of avoiding conflict, don't try to tell yourself that you're doing that in love. And don't think there's anything manly about that. And don't ever think that you failed to be loving enough or that you need to tone down the truth just because you get opposition or just because people may hate what you say or even hate you. That will happen if you are faithful. Jesus said they hated me, they'll hate you too. So if you're faithful, you will be persecuted. And and that's where you need to stand firm most of all like a man. Remember, Jesus was the perfect man. They hated him even to the point of putting him to death. And the verse I just referred to, 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're not being persecuted by anyone for anything, you're not living godly in Christ Jesus by the biblical definition. In fact, it was John, the Apostle John, who's known as the Apostle of Love, who probably wrote more about love than anybody in the New Testament, he's the one who said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Jesus said, John 15, 18, and 20, If the world hate you, you know it hated me before it hated you, and the servant is not greater than his master. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's a promise. And Jesus says, you're blessed if that happens. So, Learn to expect that and be patient and at the same time, be steadfast. Measure out equal doses of love and truth, but do it with boldness and conviction. That's the real measure of a true man. It's also the perfect recipe for true leadership. We'll talk more about it tomorrow. For now, let me close in prayer. Father, we confess that by nature we are not strong. We're not the kind of men we're supposed to be. We're too inclined to sloth and indifference, too concerned about the opinions of others. We're not captivated enough by the glory of Christ. We are all too much men of our culture and not enough men of the word. Even the best of us falls far short of the measure of perfection that Christ is. But that's the goal we aspire to. That is the prize we pursue. So make us men of courage. Give us vigilance and strength and honor and truth. And give us grace to stand strong even in a hostile world for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.